0: Welcome, Neil. Welcome. This yes is hell. Okey-doke. Manufacturing descent since nineteen ninety-six. This is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Northwestern University Radio. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the UK based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. And we are now airing on CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear this is how on your favorite local public radio station or community radio station, Email us at chuck@thisishell.com at or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you'd love to hear This Is Hell carried in your area. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we were told over and over again, we were told repeatedly that we are all in this together? We had many conversations about that here on This Is Hell at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. It it seemed like an odd sentiment considering so many modes of inequality had been imposed upon us for the past half century. Then we were reportedly engaged in a, a competition, the race for the cure. But wouldn't cooperation during a global pandemic instead of competition have addressed the virus more efficiently and effectively, possibly attaining a vaccine before we eventually did? Next, we heard that a war had been declared on the virus. But as our guest today argues, we, the people, are connected to one another, and so war metaphors are not helpful ways to think about public health. Like airplanes dropping bombs on residents too poor to flee the city that the pilots are ostensibly liberating. Waging war on viruses will often kill humans in the viral underclass, but not only them. For viruses are wherever any of us meet. And how can we declare war on where we meet, hug, make love, where our lips touch and our hearts beat, where we sing, dance, laugh, and pray together? Today, as the COVID pandemic rages on and the HIV epidemic sadly continues, we'll revisit both viruses and their impact, even their potential for a positive impact, when we speak with American studies scholar Stephen W. Thrasher, author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Find out more about the book on Twitter at Viral Underclass and at the website ViralUnderclass.com. Stephen holds the inaugural Daniel H. Renberg Chair at Northwestern University's Medill School, the first journalism professorship in the world created to focus on LGBTQ research. Stephen is a recipient of grants from the Ford and Sloan Foundations. Dr. Thrasher was named one of the 100 most influential and impactful people of 2019 by Out Magazine. You can follow Stephen on Twitter at ThrasherXY. That's ThrasherXY. And you can find out more about Stephen at StephenThrasher.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, chuck mertz producing is lindsey gory lindsey i am back from my annual two-week family vacation at cottage on lake anything new in your world over the past couple of weeks
1: not much, you know, working for the mushroom man. Yes. My dad was in town, but he drove back to Arizona over the weekend. And he was back before I was even done with my two work shifts, so oh, No no <laughs> kidding. Yeah, he is crazy. He just drove like straight there and stopped for 5 hours in Santa Rosa, New Mexico.
0: And so That was it. during your two <laughs> work shifts. He was able to drive all the way back Uh from Chicago to Phoenix. So
1: he dropped me off at my work shift on Saturday. It was 6 a.m., and he just started driving from there, and then by the next day at 2 p.m. I wasn't off work until like 4. Jeez. He texted me at 2 and he's like, I'm home.
0: <laughs> There's two problems going on. One of two problems going on here. One is either you are working far too long of hours or two, <laughs> your dad is driving way too fast.
1: I mean, yeah, I think it's the latter because I don't <laughs> wow. even work full time. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, Wow. Have you been in the car with him when he's driving far too fast?
1: Um, oh, no, he actually drives super slow. Like, it just he drove for 17 hours straight. He just doesn't stop. Like, the first, yeah, I mean, because he drives a Prius, and he's very, he you know, he really wants to get the best gas mileage. <laughs> so he actually, if you catch him on the streets of Phoenix, like, you're probably going to be going around him.
0: <laughs> like I said, I, I'm uh, back, to, uh, back after being on a two-week break. at at a lake in northern Michigan with my family, and after the multiple surgeries I've been through so far this year, I really, really needed a break, not only to physically recover from my most recent operation about six weeks ago, but to mentally recuperate as much as anyone possibly can in the span of only 14 days. I'm doing better. I seem to be healing nicely. As I was told by my doctors, the recovery could take up to as much as a year so there's still a lot ahead of me but uh let's hope and that i'm not jinxing myself as i've done so many times in the past year on this is hell but so far so good but aside from my vacation being over while my recovery continues Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience
1: this week's question from hell is what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet <laughs>
0: I'm so glad that toilet got into the (laughs) question from hell this week. Yes,
1: what evidence of your Uh, crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? uh,
0: You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at com. but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner and we're making that announcement this week following producer Sebastian Vupper and his history segment, formerly known as Sebastian's Soapbox, but will now forever be known as the past inside the present. We will still have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin this week, but he'll be on following this week's second guest. And this week in Rotten History is happening today with special thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi. Lindsay will be sharing some of your answers to this week's Question from Hell following our conversation with Stephen Thrasher on the viral underclass. Again, the Question from Hell is, what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? What evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? The person with our favorite answer to this week's Question from Hell will receive your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering or the face mask, our coffee mug, the winter hat, the trucker's cap, and the "This Is Hell" guide to the twenty-first century flash drive, featuring dozens of interviews heard here on "This Is Hell" during the uh, during this century. You can leave, or uh, you can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported "This Is Hell." Remember, without you, we got nothing. So, thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks this week goes out to listener Jack B of Villa Rica, Illinois. God, I could have swore they said Villa Park before. Hmm who recently went to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and picked up a This Is Hell trucking professional cap. And thanks to Derek B., no relation of Jack B., uh, Derek B. of Chicago, who also picked up the ever-popular This Is Hell trucking professional cap. Thanks, Jack and Derek, and as you both live in the Chicago area, essentially, we uh, fully expect to see you both at the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. Taking place during summer's final weekend on Saturday, September 17th at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. More on that in a bit. Brave enough to be streaming live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Lindsay has this week's hangover cure. I know you do. I'm positive.
1: I do, but will I press my mic button?
0: (laughs) That's the part we're not sure about.
1: (laughs) This week's hangover cure is beetroot pineapple juice. Mm, Delicious. In the Lifestyle Asia article, happy hours, not so happy the next morning? Here are five drinks for hangovers. Sritama Basu writes, Promising yourself just one drink is almost like that toxic boyfriend who promises to change after days of emotional manipulation. But while he gives you heartaches, the alcohol gives you headaches. And although we don't have a solution for the former, the good news is that we have just the right remedy for the latter.
0: I'm, I'm feeling here that we're getting a lot about Sri Sritama's personal life that we didn't need to I'm a little triggered myself. I know, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> All right, Sritama then offers the info, the beetroot pineapple juice, as a refreshing drink that is also a foolproof cure for a hangover. Sritama explains alcohol contains a lot of ethanol while metabolizing that your liver goes through a lot of stress and hard work In such SOS situations beetroot juice will come to your rescue it contains betain, an antioxidant rich in anti-inflammatory compounds the pineapple meanwhile not only adds flavor and natural sweetness but also offers a boost of vitamin C that makes this week's hangover cure Beetroot
0: Pineapple Juice. Beetroot Pineapple Juice. Good luck finding that in any store. I've never seen it ever. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even destructive criticism if you'd like, at chuck at And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. If we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest. We got an email from recent guest Calvin Graham, who is not only a longtime listener to the show and a frequent contributor, Of guest suggestions but was also recently on our show back in July with Douglas Pond Cummings uh, when we spoke with both of them about their writing that appeared in the Tulsa Law Review racial capitalism and race massacres Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's sharecroppers Calvin writes hey guys hope all is well with y'all wanted to throw an article from a past guest your way that I think would make for a particularly hellish interview on the recent flooding in Kentucky Calvin then sends a link to uh, the Baffler article by past guest Terrence Ray titled Flooding in the Sacrifice Zone Among the Wreckage in Eastern Kentucky. Terrence's article is fascinating as he points out that, quote, we have to be able to discern where the natural part of any disaster ends and the social or political part of it begins. After all, as the young couple that he discusses in his article showed, people are angry and that rage can be harnessed toward a story, a collective narrative that would help us prevent this from ever happening again. So keep listening this week as we are waiting to hear back from Terrence right now on his availability to discuss the disaster that has been happening for a very long time in Kentucky and continues to happen, a disaster that has a lot to do with the climate change contributing coal industry. You may remember Terrence being on the show a little over a year ago back in July of 2021 to talk about another Baffler article he wrote, United in Rage, Half-Truths, and myths propelled Kentucky's war on opioids. That interview was selected by our listeners as one of their favorites of 2021. And you can currently find it online by searching on Terrence Ray. And this is hell. Calvin closes with, appreciate everything you and the team do. And I'm hoping to take the trek up to the anniversary party next month. Calvin, we truly appreciate your suggestion, your participation on the show. And as I told Calvin in a response, We'd already reached out to Terrence, and we're waiting to hear back from him. So it's entirely possible Terrence will be back on the show next Monday to talk about his article on Kentucky. And it's possible we will know during this week's show, so stay tuned in for that. And, Calvin, we hope you make it back up to Chicago next month for the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. Featuring live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and the closing of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art show, Happening up here on the second floor of where the party will be taking place, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's all happening on the final final Saturday of summer, Saturday, September 17th. Again, it's the this is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party happening on Saturday, September 17th during summer's final weekend at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Art upstairs, food out back, music downstairs, all of that, and a raffle, too. Again, you can email us at chuckatthisishell.com, and if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. Coming up, what viruses, epidemics, and pandemics reveal about our current reality that the powers that be would rather you did not recognize? We will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? And we'll have this week in Rotten History, courtesy of one Ronaldo Magaldi. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. How could we ever all be in this together when there are so many forms of inequality imposed upon us every day, when the system within which we live depends upon inequality for whatever you want to call it, success. But uh, what if we what if we were? What if a, vi- a virus could reveal not only the fissures in the system within which we exist, but also the ways that we are in fact all in this together? Joining us today, we are very happy to have as a guest on our show, American Studies scholar Stephen W. Thrasher, author of The Viral, Underclass, The Human Toll, When Inequality and Disease Collide. Welcome to This Is Hell, Stephen.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's great having you on the show. I've been reading your work at The Guardian for several years, and it's really fantastic. Make sure you check out all of Stephen's work by going to his website, steventhrasher.com. Jonathan Metzl, Frederick B. Rentschler II, professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University, where he is also director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He authored the foreword to your book on the COVID-19 pandemic, on viruses in general, and the viral underclass. Metzl writes, the sirens with which Stephen Thrasher opens this tragic, beautiful erudite book announced what seemed at the time to be a common threat to shared humanity. The sirens portended not just doom, but decision for people in cities like New York and in countries like the United States. Did we, the safely distance, hear the noise and think we were dying, we humans, we citizens, we neighbors, workers, parents, friends of friends, or did we breathe relief and autonomically think they are dying. They, the deserving, they, the disposable, they, the viral underclass. The former response is what should have happened if we were at risk when we could have taken collective action to seriously address inequity, build vibrant communities or common structures, and create even more of the kinds of social capital or social cohesion through which society, healthy societies survive in pandemics. Building social capital based on common ground in turn Would move us closer to what the past guest on our show, economist Amartya Sen, calls better societies which can emerge from the moments of crisis in which peril sparks appreciation of our shared humanity and a renewed drive toward building mutually beneficial infrastructures that persist well after the crisis has subsided. National health care systems, for instance, or reformed police, more vibrant food distribution networks, protected climates and closed wealth gaps. When the virus came, as I was saying earlier, when the virus came to the United States back in March of 2020, we discussed with guests the reported claim in the media, especially prior to any vaccine being developed, that we are all in this together. To you explains uh, the desire, the need or desire to to convince the public that we are all in this together when, when, which completely contradicts the system within which we live, contradicts our reality. Why was there such a desire to make us believe or think that we are all in this together when inequality would suggest that we're not.
2: Well, um sorry, I'm having a little issue with my speaker here. Um I'm hold on one second. I'm I can't I'm hearing something very strange while I'm trying to talk to you. Um hold on one second.
0: All right. We'll give you just a second. We are listening to or we are ta- speaking with Uh, American studies scholar, Stephen W. Thrasher, author of The Viral Uh, Underclass, The Human Toll, When Inequality and Disease Collide.
2: So, um, Can you you hear me okay now?
0: Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay,
2: great. Sorry, I was getting a strange feedback. That's okay. Um, So what I think is happening is that as this virus started to uh, affect people in the United States, there was a broad, uh, very different sense of how it would How it would affect, could potentially affect everyone in the country, and particularly how it could potentially affect um, people in the ruling class. And what was really strange and unusual compared to HIV in the past or compared to monkeypox right now was the sense that it could potentially infect anyone. And in a way, you know, it can. Uh, SARS CoV 2 and its various. Uh, variants over the past couple of years is perhaps the most transmissible virus that human beings have ever encountered or certainly that they've ever been able to study with such precision. And so in some ways, you know, it could potentially uh, find its way to anyone. And even people in the upper class and the ruling class who were largely able to protect themselves by staying at home, they still you know, had uh, domestic help coming in or they might need a plumber or something. And so they did not feel uh, that they could completely wall themselves off the way that they could from previous viruses, and so there was initially the sense that this could be, from some people, you know, that this could be a really uh, an enormous equalizer that affected everyone the same way. And for anyone who studied epidemics, we knew that that was not going to be the case. Uh, in in the past in history, you know, there's only one uh, one epidemic I can think of, which was. Um, uh, syphilis at one point in the Victorian era that was affecting the ruling class, but otherwise every epidemic has exacerbated uh, current social problems and and brought them into stark relief and often made them worse, um, even though they've, they've offered a roadmap for how we can understand how to be better connected to one another. Um, And so when this virus started to to move in the United States, um, some people were saying that this is going to make everyone equal. But it was quite obvious that that wasn't going to be the case. You could look at the original maps from where it was happening and you could see who was getting affected the most. Uh, the, The racial breakdown became clear pretty quickly. I could see from my previous research around police violence and incarceration and HIV and AIDS that that the same maps initially were filling in with People being infected with COVID and also getting very sick and dying from it, um, and so I found this. I, I I kind of built out this idea of a viral underclass, which I uh, had first heard used around the criminalization of HIV and AIDS, to see that there were ways that this virus was really exacerbating existing class dynamics. And even though, and I, I put them out in the book. There are ways that it breaks down racially it breaks down around ableism and around homosexuality and being trans or cis uh, there's really a major class dynamic and class is one of the things that we have a very very difficult time talking about in the united states and to the extent that we do talk about race or sexuality or gender identity it's often done in a in a way that's almost like a consumer market sense and not in a class sense and i think virus is really illustrate uh, the way class operates and how all these other ide- forms of identity also uh, work out in terms of class, and viruses just make that really, really clear.
0: So why do we have so much difficulty discussing class? Is there a sense of class denialism
2: here in the United States? I think there definitely is. Um, and. Some of the things I write about in the book, there are dynamics that happen in other places in the world. But one of the things I think is very particular to the United States that we see with viruses is that they show how class operates in terms of health diagnoses and particularly around infectious disease. So in in other countries in the world, in England, which has their own challenges, but the NHS has a certain infrastructure. And uh, you know, people are going to probably get uh, you know vaccine or treatment much faster. The United States, actually, somewhat to my surprise, got up and running in a massively effective and fast uh, way of distributing vaccines. But the way they did so, the way we did so, uh, exacerbated existing class and racial dynamics. People who did work from home already had enormous structural privilege from from avoiding COVID nineteen and. Everyone, including myself, you know, who were working at home, our ability to do so was predicated upon people who were doing face-to-face work in Amazon fulfillment centers, um, in restaurants, in food places, uh, of course, in hospitals, many without the proper gear. And that was really a class issue. And I think it's really interesting to remember that uh, Chris Small, one of the main activists around the Amazon labor union, Started organizing because he, he felt that there were unfair and unsafe labor practices around uh, COVID nineteen. They weren't giving them sufficient uh, su- sufficient protection, and they were they're putting people at risk. Um, and you can look at the the various research that's come out over the past couple of years to see what jobs were the most dangerous. Healthcare workers had, you know, I'm not denying that they didn't have dangerous jobs, but they generally had uh, much better infrastructure after the first couple of months and the, the first couple of months were terrible. But after the first couple of months, when they started getting proper personal protective equipment, uh healthcare workers you know, had situations where they, they could be much safer than other workers. And and one of the largest studies done so far, it was uh, kitchen workers, line cooks who had the who had the deadliest job that were the most likely to die. And so that's very much um, a class issue. And then in the US, what we have that's different is even if you, um, you know, if you are able to avoid getting the virus, you have a certain standing, but if you become infected with anything, you're very likely to have your class status denigrated or lowered. Um, And how that plays out It's like right now with monkeypox, if people get infected with monkeypox, they're mandated to somewhere between a two and four week quarantine, depending how they respond to medication, if they can get it, the most effective medication is still in trial stage. Um, You know, they could be in quarantine actually for six or eight weeks and they're mandated to stay at home by the state with no financial support. And so, you know, I'm seeing these GoFundMes and and some of us are giving to them. by people who are just sent home, and they were, they're expected to magically have enough money to last them for you know a month or two months without pay, um, which of course is going to make them more likely to be hungry, more likely to be, become evicted and become homeless. And so in the US, it's a class dynamic that happens when infection occurs, that people are, are just very likely to end up with medical bills they can't pay, that can make them more likely to be unemployed, unemployable, uh, become homeless, and end up incarcerated. Um, But in the U.S., you know, because capitalism is so central to framing everything we do and everything we think about, it becomes really hard to have conversations about class. And I don't think at all that matters of identity uh, or, you know, identity politics are divorced from class. They're not. The origins of identity politics are thinking about socialism. And if you look at a lot of these really fantastic labor things happening around the country in places like Starbucks or Amazon, much of the work is being done by queer people and by trans people who are working class. But the ways that identity get talked about in the mainstream media uh, and by politicians are not invoking class at all, usually. I think more people have a sense that uh, gay people live a life like RuPaul or live a life like Will and Grace, then they have a sense of, of queer people as you know trans activists, um, organizing as shift workers in a in a starbucks even though that's much more the lived reality of queer people um, and so so often class is pushed out of the picture and i that's why i think uh, understanding the class dynamics of outbreaks is really important and can help people have a framework to see how class operates specifically with viruses in interesting ways but also more, more broadly through the medical system and throughout u.s society
0: When it comes to class as an identity, there really wasn't that much, as you were saying, there really wasn't that much discussion of class, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, except for when they would show, let's say, grocery workers who were going to work and they were being depicted suddenly as heroes. But it didn't take too long for those heroes to become almost dismissible and all of a sudden weren't getting paid the extra money that they were getting paid at the beginning of the uh, outbreak of the virus. So what happens to a public—I know this is kind of a general question. It wasn't something I'd written down beforehand, but I was thinking about it while you were responding. What happens to a public discussion and debate on politics and policy when that discussion lacks uh, any kind of examination or consideration of class? What happens to our debate here within the United States when class is is something that is verboten?
2: Well, as I, I write about extensively in the book, and have been um, thinking about along similar dynamics, but uh, with actions that happened after the book, with with monkeypox and trying to trying to help people get a handle on it, is that absent uh, class analysis, everything gets reframed as a matter of personal responsibility, and this is a problem across both political parties that they will try to figure out ways to absolve the society certainly corporations and government um from having any uh, any, resp- any responsibility for dealing with things that affect the whole society and, and and then everything gets heaped upon the individual um and the way that that works out i think when when you don't uh, admit that there's a, that there are class dimensions and that class is replicating itself through these processes and becoming more intense the uh the impetus to put things on the individual grows uh, even more uh as i write about in the book there was all this hysteria around uh, quote unquote covid parties early in the pandemic that young people were deliberately infecting themselves with covid and going to parties and passing it on to others and they would have a pot of money and the one who got a covid test would um would, would get the money. And this was when like you know, only Hollywood celebrities and politicians could get COVID tests, <laughs> that COVID tests were not widely possible. Um, and we see this kind of trope come up again and again and again, used both by media and mainstream politicians to try to frame sickness as a matter of you know, gluttonous moral irresponsibility on the part of bad actors. Um, and it's something that I, I've reported on for many years in my career, the, the story that's kind of at the heart of this book, about a young black gay man named michael johnson who was accused of transmitting hiv to other people and one of the things i think that's so outrageous about his story is when you look at the initial coverage of it he's treated as if he's a a global menace to people becoming infected with hiv Um, even though 35 to 40 million people are living with this virus around the world and you, you certainly can't Ever say it's any one person's fault? Who, why that, why, why that's happening? Um, but continuously with with various outbreaks and sicknesses, we're seeing it again now with monkeypox. Uh, media and politicians will try to figure out one person to blame everything on, and to say that this is an individual moral failing, and it's your fault for not doing better. And we're really seeing that also right now with COVID nineteen. COVID is. Uh, really bad right now. You know, the the death numbers in the United States and the transmission numbers are, um, well, the death numbers are about twice what they were at this time last year, last summer. Uh, the transmission numbers are much, much higher. The good news is that medications have made it so that the percent of people dying Um, has decreased. The bad news is we have abandoned nearly every what we call NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, such that the transmission is just running rampant all the time. Um, And at the same time, because we have dismantled the very tenuous uh, infrastructure that we made to get people vaccinated. Last year, we're, we're slowly becoming an unvaccinated country as well. These vaccines do amazing things, um, but they only their, their best power lasts six to eight months and people need to get uh, vaccinated, or get boosted a couple times a year. And so that simply isn't happening. We're vastly majority country that isn't up to date on vaccinations. Um, and so more people are dying than, than there were a couple of years ago uh, or, or last year. Um, And it's really unfortunate and terrible. And it's a systemic issue. and It's not an insurmountable systemic issue, but it's one that there doesn't seem to be the political will to deal with. The Democrats have failed to pass their $15 billion plan from, I think they tried to pass it in March. Uh, And so nobody with insurance can get treated anymore without paying out of pocket, which can cost hundreds of dollars per test. They they can't get treated if they get sick which of course can cost tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars depending how complicated it is uh and so we we've let, we're just letting this virus move through the society and kill more people and absent dealing with the systemic reasons why that's happening and you know by their definition viruses are, are socially they, they move socially there's something that happens between people and so when the social dynamics of it when the class dynamics and the systemic are abandoned then it becomes much uh more important for media and politicians to blame the individual and so we're seeing that really in the framing right now coming out from the white house and a lot of the mainstream media uh that it's up to you to get boosted it's up to individuals to be up to date um and i think it's really unfair to you know to try to say that this is something that's done out of laziness or out of you know a sudden vaccine hesitancy i mean the the vast majority you know approaching almost approaching 100 percent of seniors got vaccinated the reason they did was because the federal government local governments went to them they went to nursing homes they went to people who couldn't leave their homes to you know, people who didn't know how to use computers many were poor, many didn't speak English, and they got everyone vaccinated. They're not doing that with boostering. And so a dynamic that's repeating itself, which I've seen from my research with HIV, is that, you know, people who have health insurance and see a doctor uh, once or twice a year are going to see their doctors, and they'll get boosted and, you know, be relatively, uh, have some some defense. Not, not 100% defense, because we're We're collectively not where we need to be, but they'll have the best defense that they can have. And the people who don't see doctors are not going to have any defense. Um, And that's just going to exacerbate existing structures around ableism and racism and ageism uh, because old people are, uh, especially those who are homebound or living in nursing homes, are really dependent on uh, help from structures. Uh, They can't proactively be using QR codes and driving places around looking for vaccines. Um, And when this is happening, then it just becomes more important for the government to say, well, it's your fault. You didn't, you know, you didn't get boosted, even though there is no infrastructure now, like there was uh, a year, year and a half ago to get people these medications.
0: And you write that the consequences of reporting and misreporting on an individual often called patient zero as being at fault for a newly recognized virus, you point out the consequences of that are are very bad. So how often is there a, a patient zero, or even a cause zero, a singular individual action, a primary mover of a virus that becomes an epidemic or pandemic-level outbreak. And is this a concern of those in scientific fields, like epidemiologists, the patient zero or a cause zero, or is this just a concern amongst those in the media?
2: It, the whole concept is based on a, an, a mistake this is not something that scientists are concerned about scientists you know want to understand how viruses move and where they come from but they also know that you know viruses don't just magically appear in people like the Immaculate Conception or anything they're socially moved and so you can't ever say there's just one person um even when they what viruses are called zoonotic that move from animals to humans, again you want to understand the relationship of how that happens it's not anyone's fault that a farmer or you know a child in the country interacts with with an animal it's not that person's fault um so scientists are often trying to find the origins but much more so like the structures and why it happens and media and government will try to make it into one person but the term itself and this is research i've you know i've learned from reading others i didn't do this work originally myself but i find it very interesting and the term itself was a mistake patient zero that the journalist randy Schultz um was interviewing i think cdc researchers about how they were trying to understand how uh how hiv was moving in the in the early 1980s and, and how AIDS, it was then aids because there was no way to stop it um how it was developing um and he was talking to researchers who, who were talking to like 40 different people um but one of them that one researcher had been interviewing a man named Gayton Duga who was a French Canadian flight attendant and a very cooperative and very helpful and that's something we always want we want to encourage people without stigma and shame to be able to share about what's happened with them so we can understand how viruses are moving and so this particular person was very open and very helpful and the researcher talking to him who was that researcher was primarily talking to people in California just wrote down that this person was outside of california and he wrote patient letter o um and schultz and others completely just made a mistake and thought that that was patient zero when it was no such thing um and, so, and you know sort of made up accidentally the idea that this was the the first person to have this virus and uh, it was known at the time that he was not the first person we've known virologically for um uh, the past five years or so that that HIV was certainly circulating in North America at least 20 years before that. There's a young person who died probably of AIDS in the 1960s uh, named Robert Rayford, who also predates Duga by a decade and a half. But we should never just say it's that one person. And the US is particularly bad about this and, say, and kind of thinking of itself as a country without viruses and as a country that's, you know, ablelessly pure and free of disease, uh, which has a real kind of eugenics feel to it. And so the US will deny that transmission is happening inside the country. We saw this for decades with HIV and AIDS. It wasn't until I think 2010 where people with HIV from other countries could come into the United States at all. They were banned from coming into the US, even though we uh, have had all kinds of, of bad issues around transmission and ongoing transmission needlessly inside this country. We like to think of it as an outside problem. Same thing happened with COVID, and um, still happens. The, the Title Forty Two, the the immigration rule that that allows uh, the U.S. to quickly deport migrants because they suspect that they're harming uh, infectious disease problems inside the country, that's still being used, even though uh, the U.S. has arguably the worst rate of transmission of any country on Earth, but we'd like to blame that on migrants. Um, and we just see that happen repetitively in the US, that that will try to think one person brought this bad thing into the country when it's the country's fault at large for letting outbreaks happen. We had, you know, we had a couple months advance notice uh, from this latest version of SARS in late 2019, early 2020. We certainly had almost two decades of uh, experience we could have drawn on from countries in Asia that dealt with the first SARS and had developed practices that worked quite well at reducing all kinds of infection uh, respiratory infections. We didn't really heed that. The same thing has happened with monkeypox. The first outbreaks we saw recently in Europe and Canada, the US could have proactively started vaccinating, which several of us were calling for at the time in May and June before things got bad here. Um, and of course uh, monkeypox as well there was a, another version of it that's been in endemic countries on the African continent for 50 60 70 years that has a whole body of literature that the U.S could have learned from and that the U.S to our peril you know did not help other countries deal with when when they've asked for it in recent years and um and so in in the face of all of that uh the U.S will will, try to say, no, this is the fault of one bad actor who brought this in, rather than dealing with the fact that we live in an interconnected world. There are ways that we can make life on earth and health on earth for people better in this country and around the world. And if we don't do that collectively, then it does leave many people in peril. But that's never the fault of any one person who becomes infected with the virus We're just doing very normal life things as you were reading from my introduction earlier it's like it's how we kiss it's how we have sex um you know shaking hands eating food together working together praying together like like these are the ways that viruses move and it's no one's fault for doing those things that we need to do to to be alive
0: And from what you were just saying, it sounds like American exceptionalism can definitely be a a public health threat. We are speaking with American studies scholar Stephen W. Thrasher, author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll, When Inequality and Disease Collide. And you point out that just as Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and Michelle Alexander's use of the concept of a new Jim Crow have done, a theory of the viral underclass can serve as a framework for understanding how vulnerability is manufactured— for certain kinds of people and how it spreads through society more broadly, with the economy, media, and law acting as potent modes for trans of transmission for the infection of inequality. So, is the viral underclass? Is that a purposeful outcome? And if so, who benefits and profits from the viral underclass?
2: In some ways, it's a byproduct of other of just capital extraction. Um, I think there there are particular ways that we see it play out. Uh, and there is profit from sickness uh in itself in some ways um the viral aspect of it is the byproduct of other capital extraction and it's just makes it a way to see it very clearly so for example you know a, a lot of people make uh a lot of revenue gets gets shared and uh, I'm sorry a lot of revenue gets made and hoarded through incarcerating people and a small percent of it is happens through for-profit prisons and corporations like geo you know they make uh they make profits of it but a much larger uh way that we see this play out ruth wilson gilmore writes about this a lot is that resources get hoarded in particular ways in settings that don't directly have to do with profit you know in prisons and state prisons and federal prisons and ice uh facilities there's a lot of resources that go to those places and the beneficiaries you know are the the guards the prison guards union um certainly there are private corporations and they're trying to earn profit as well but but lots of resources go to those places and we can be spending you know six figures on keeping people incarcerated that money could go to other places um and a byproduct of that is a lot of sickness and as i write about early on in the book i think a lot about how george floyd when the, the autopsy was done on him after he was killed by the police it showed that he had recently been infected by the novel coronavirus and so i really use that moment to think about you know, what would the outcome have been with george floyd who had lost his job he had two jobs and he lost both of them uh, in the pandemic as 40 million people did in those first few months uh, before any kind of federal aid had, had kicked into them and i think about what if the city of minneapolis which spends almost 40 percent of its budget on police had instead had instead spent that money not on jails and police and locking people up but on social programs that got housing and food and money to people who needed it at that time and in an ongoing way. And if that happened, maybe Floyd never would have ended up, you know, in that store and interacting with the police, maybe he'd still be alive. Um, And so when we look at that a little broader, if we think about why, what if we didn't spend so much money on prisons and jails and police and gave people what they needed, then then there very well could be fewer viral problems because the jails and the prisons themselves are engines of transmission in very direct ways. But they also create these uh, these processes and, and things that happen that put people at more risk. They make people more likely once you've been in jail to become homeless and unemployable and and ergo not to be able to have access to healthcare and to become infected. Um, at the level of the viruses themselves, though, there are all these really perverse things that happen that are just directly about making people rich. And the drugs that have been developed in the last half century and and very much so, you know, in the past 10, 20 years are really amazing and what they could do to give people um, a freedom from, from serious illness or death around viruses. Uh, a lot of activists in ACTA, the main group that Began protesting around AIDS in the 1980s and 90s, and still does work today. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of activists there say, "Like science won. You know, by 1996, there were these drugs that that could save almost everyone. Um, but then capitalism trumped that, and so the science lost to capitalism because the more important thing in our society was the profit for the drugs and actually getting the drugs to people." And it was the drugs came out in like 1996, but they didn't even start going to sub-Saharan Africa and to a lot of areas of Latin America and Asia until 2003. It was uh, at least seven years. And during those years, millions of people died who who didn't need to around the world, um, you know, just so that companies like Pfizer, Merck and, and these kind of companies could have more profit. And so we saw the same thing with COVID-19 vaccines that um, they really work wonders. They They're... They're predicated upon getting populations to a threshold that will um, keep collective rates down, and we're having a tough time with that in the U.S. But um, they worked really well, and there are countries in the world where very few people have them. And the WTO did not allow, um, you know, the free movement of this information to. Move around the globe and just be manufactured to get people uh, these vaccines as quickly as possible. The more important thing was was limiting their manufacturing so that cor- these corporations could make more profit. And now with monkeypox, those of us in the U.S. are kind of on the other side of this equation because the best vaccine for it is made by a Norwegian company that's only producing it in one plant in Bulgaria. That plant has had similar issues to like the Abbott Labs, uh, the Abbott Labs uh, milk scenario here in the US where it's been offline for cleaning and it, it just can't make that much. Um, you know. And But for capitalism, I, I think once these drugs are developed and they're almost everywhere in the world, even if private corporations wrestle the profits, everywhere in the world, they're like made with significant state, resources uh, and they would not be possible without state uh, investments, manufacturing or uh, certainly research and, and development a lot of state money goes into it. Um, and so in theory like these these drugs, which are almost everyone in the world made with state resources, should be public and once we understand how to make them and they're tested and they're safe, ideally then they would be produced everywhere in the world they could be to get them to people as quickly as possible save as many lives and even from a very crude economic standpoint um the more the quicker you protect everyone I, i would think it would actually make uh the economy sort of run more smoothly um but as you brought up naomi klein disaster capitalism you know and shock doctrine create these ways that uh corporations can exploit disasters even more and so as much as uh capitalists complain about past couple of years, it's been an enormous wealth transfer to the richest people in the world. And and a lot of that comes from the scarcity that happens around making people well and getting them the vaccines and medications um, that they could have that would free workers up to have fulfilling lives and, in many cases, just longer lives uh, because it it would save their lives.
0: I mentioned at the very beginning during the introduction, the different phrases that we were hearing at the beginning of the pandemic when it was, we're all in this together, and then it turned into a race for the cure, and then it turned into a war on the virus, which you were discussing is not a very good framework to uh, have as a public health strategy. And you write of HIV and SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus, quote, even though there are effective medications for HIV and good vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, both these viruses still uh, power two of the world's most dangerous ongoing pandemics. They're both also likely viruses that humans will not be eradicating anytime soon and will probably be living with for a good long while. The risks of both of these viruses can be mitigated with simple prophylactic barriers, masks for the novel coronavirus, condoms for HIV, both of which have spawned intense international culture wars But also those more conceptual forms of prophylaxis, like access to safe housing, stable employment, and the collective medication of populations can protect against both viruses. This broader idea of prophylaxis and the elusiveness of these measures for many reflects a commitment to care that many societies persistently resist. Adopting them would mean changing the notions of inequality, manufactured scarcity, and hoarded abundance that currently organize our world. During the current COVID pandemic, we've heard all sorts of reports of the failures of supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. Is the problem not the impact of COVID on, quote unquote, supply chain issues, but the threat of viruses to globalization, to private corporations, conglomeration and centralization, and the and, and more generally, in neoliberalism and the implementations of worldwide inequality, manufactured scarcity and hoarded abundance. Is this, is again, this phrase supply chain issues, does that distract or obfuscate us, obfuscate the what the real issue is behind the problems that we are experiencing during COVID?
2: Well, yeah, when... It's it's interesting that like systems will get invoked. I think in the opposite in the opposite scenarios than I would hope for. Um, so like the supply chain is a systemic issue, but hidden in that is that um, it's of course affecting human beings. Like it's not it's not just that the machines stopped working. It's that humans and the the chain stopped working. It's that the humans who operate it are are sick and dying. Uh, for instance, I think it was just yesterday the FAA in New York, where I am right now, uh, for a couple weeks this summer. Um, just had to limit air traffic into New York City because they have too many controllers out. They don't have enough staffing. And there's this continuous denial that that uh you know getting rid of mass mandates and, and all the other things to try, you know, various forms of quarantine, how long people should quarantine, that plays out in people's bodies. And those people keep the machine running. So if you don't have any air traffic controllers, you don't have enough pilots, flight attendants, security guards, baggage handlers, Uh, You know, of course, the the planes and the ships stop moving and the same, of course, happens in factories. And some factories are more dangerous than others. Slaughterhouses, at many times in 2020, 2021, were um, the most dangerous workplaces in the United States. Um, And so if viruses are allowed to run rampant inside people, they are going to cause these kind of uh, issues. And the essential worker framework is really sort of sad and problematic in that the workers were called essential, but but the individual workers were not. The jobs were essential. You know, someone had to perform those jobs, but the workers themselves were expendable. And so what happened was, you know, the job would go on, people would be required to work in person with varying degrees of protection or not. Um, and if the individual in that job got sick, then they would just get replaced by another person and the job would go on rather than thinking about maybe the job shouldn't happen that way. Are there other ways we could do the job? Are there safer way, ways that the workplace could become safer? And that went on until there were a million people dead in the U.S. And suddenly there's you know a labor shortage to, per, to do certain positions, um, to do the positions that are actually the most essential to human beings being be able to eat and get the health care they need and have shelter, kind of our most core things that we need. Um, And because there was such carelessness done with that, and so many people were allowed to get sick and die, and continuously people are getting allowed to keep getting sick, then that just put pressure on the other workers who were still there, and things start breaking down. Um, And that's kind of where I think we are right now with that.
0: And you point out that um, across the political spectrum, my body my choice can be used to conjure america's sense of how individual ownership should supersede all else and you write that uh, the notion, This notion of individuality, despite being a core element of American society, is a myth. It is a myth that we are each the master of our own distinct destiny. It is a myth that the risks inherent in experiencing child-rearing pandemics and climate change should never be experienced collectively. And it is a myth that results in behavior with regard to one's health and its consequences being seen as entirely the choice and burden, financial and otherwise of the lone person experiencing it so how can you convince those who believe in the myth of individuality that that's all it is it's just a myth how can you convince people of that myth when that myth can protect things like it did protect roe v wade for many decades
2: i don't think it did protect roe v wade. I and mean, i think that the one of the problems politically um that I tried to articulate at the end of the book and and I was done with it before the Dobbs decision uh was that for a long time liberals did you know did sort of say abortion should abortion should not be spoken as a word it should be framed as choice um and it should fit to this this myth of you know everyone just has choice over their own body they didn't demand uh, that abortion happen In the context of you know universal health care and they're often afraid to say the word um and so i think that we should say like no like ultimately you know it didn't work um and not only do we need access to uh, or do people who can get pregnant need access to you know abortion um but all the things that that fall on parents need to be more collectively experience and collectively support it. So I think abortion should be publicly supported, but also child rearing should be uh, more publicly supported so that every individual doesn't feel like they're on their own and they have to make these decisions entirely feeling like they're they're by themselves and they're not going to get support from other people. Um, and I think that even though there are ways that they can be helpful to think about, you know, somebody having choice over their own autonomous body. The viruses like they just prove again and again and again that that is a myth, that we don't there is no like one individual body that's not affected by other bodies. We breathe, um, we have sex, we touch one another. But even but with COVID in particular, like we all breathe <laughs> and we breathe in very casual ways and you can't not breathe. You can't not be around people who are also breathing, um, which shows that like we share this collective body And we all have to have a responsibility for how it does. And just because one person thinks they're not going to get COVID or they're not going to get seriously sick from COVID, they are dependent. Their very lives are dependent upon people growing food, butchering food, manufacturing food, delivering food to them. And they need for those people to be well. And that's going to take sometimes collective sacrifice. You know, if it means paying more for certain things, if it means um, Higher taxes on certain people to get PPE or to create work conditions that have better ventilation. Um, you know, we, we all share sort of that collective body, and and our collective well-being can only be so good as the whole public body goes. And yes, as I you know, as I as I point out, the people kind of at the top of the heap of this uh, have much less risk, but they are still dependent upon. The people at the other end of the of the ladder economically to be able to be well, and so I think that that's the way that we um, try to bust the myth is just say that no, there, there are no discrete bodies. We are going to be connected to one another. It, you know, in two hundred years, if human beings are still alive, or enough of us after climate change. Um, you know, our our literal code of our bodies is going to be significantly different having gone through this pandemic and that's going to affect the the human race and thinking about that helps us understand that we are in in a way we are all in this together we're not we're not at the same level of risk um but everything affects everything else and so we that's a way to bust the myth that we're each on our own
0: just a few more questions for you, Stephen. You write that most of us in the United States are socialized to think as consumers, not as citizens of a society with collective health responsibilities, even me. For instance, before COVID 19, I could get on planes easily and fly anywhere I could afford in the world, with little thought to how that choice affected the asthmatic black and brown children living near the airports I departed from and arrived at, whose lungs inhaled exhaust from the jets ferrying me around the world or how the carbon footprint of my travel would affect wildfires in California or Greece. Why did I need to think of their bodies when I thought about flying? I was free to do whatever I chose with my body as long as I could afford the price of the ticket. The most fundamental, largely unexamined premise we have in the United States is the belief that I am me and you are you, and that each of us is the master of our own hero's journey. How much does capitalism depend upon us not considering any of the consequences of the actions we take from the way we travel to the food we buy and is considering the consequences of those actions an individualist consumerist solution.
2: Yeah, capitalism always tries to make us think that we're just by ourselves and that whatever we can afford, uh, we should have. Um, But there are consequences to every decision we make around that. And there are um, ways that every decision we make as a consumer affects other people, and so that's why I think thinking as consumers isn't helpful. You know, we are citizens, we are um, inhabitants, and people who share this planet together. And every decision we make can have consequences on others. Um, but capitalism does keep trying to, to, you know, make us feel like we are we are by ourselves, and whatever buying power we have should give us a certain kind of freedom. And if we don't have the buying power for that we should feel a sense of shame and failure um and i hope that one of the things my my book can help people do is is approach the way american capitalism wants everyone to think they're going to be a billionaire someday and of course they're not um and even though you know the poor and the working class might have different conditions than the middle class or the upper middle class they all have much more in common than any with each other than anyone does with with the ruling class Um, and even people in the middle class could be just one viral infection away from falling down class wise and so I hope that this can help people have a little more sense of solidarity um, about what we do share with one another when the ruling class is sucking all the resources away and, and and to the top
0: And you point out that there is tremendous power and how, for the first time in human history, all humans on the planet have been going through some version of the same thing at nearly the same time with the ability to communicate globally about it. But what, if anything, have you seen being done with that power?
2: Um, I mean, I think that there's that we're going through this process and, um, I do think a lot of people want to help one another, and we see that, you know, we see this um, with how the majority of people still are for mass mandates and for, um, you know, vaccine requirements, and it's leaders who are failing us in business and government, um, but people do want to help one another, and I think that the ways that mutual aid and certain kinds of organizing the consciousness around this has expanded to a much larger group of people, um, have been you know phenomenal. Um, and certainly in in 2020, I think when a lot of office workers were working from home, they found a lot more you know, they found a lot more satisfaction in um, spending parts of their times, you know, getting groceries for their elderly neighbors or organizing things in their neighborhood. Um, and so I think that that's been a powerful way that that people have understood we we don't only have to depend upon, our workplaces or um, certain commercial things, that there are ways that we can be connected to one another. And I think the process of being separated from one another has um, made a lot of people have a lot more appreciation for for their, you know, for the time that they can spend with their neighbors and their friends.
0: One last question for you, Stephen. We've been speaking with Stephen Thresher, author of yeah, The Viral- I, Yeah, I, I
2: have to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to
0: let you go. Just one last question. Uh, our final question that we do with each and every one of our guests is called the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Can a reconsideration of viruses save us from climate change? And if so, how?
2: Yeah, um, I, I think that viruses actually give us one of the clearest blueprints. Um, for how to move forward in terms of the climate the destinies of these things are very related there's a big paper in nature a couple weeks ago about the movement of bats and um how climate change is is making bats move and have more human interactions which is likely something like this is likely what led to the COVID-19 pandemic uh and certainly climate change is forcing more living beings onto a smaller share of the earth and so we have to learn how to, to negotiate with one another to um, to be able to uh, stop climate change and also stop more pandemics from throwing uh, everything into chaos. Um, but I think that the the biggest lessons from. The viruses and from the COVID 19 pandemic, in some ways, even from monkeypox, um, is understanding this relationship with animals and understanding that we have to work in an interdependent way that's not and has nothing to do with capital extraction to stop this process and to negotiate this process with one another. You know, no sort of neoliberal capitalist. Um, uh, incentive programs or or green economy things are going to stop climate change. It's going to take something much bigger. Uh, And I think that the viral pandemic show us that there are things that are much bigger and that um, that require huge amounts of negotiation and cooperation and interdependence. And so I think that we get a really clear blueprint from the ways that we, with humility and interdependence and cooperation, have to deal with one another to mitigate viruses, that's also going to, uh, that gives a really good blueprint for negotiating, mitigating the things around climate change too.
0: Stephen, congratulations on your book. It really is a fantastic work. The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When equality, Inequality and Disease Collide. You can find out more about the book on Twitter at Viral Underclass and at the website ViralUnderclass.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell of what you just heard from Stephen Thrasher on the viral underclass. If that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, or it made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week's streams live on Friday at 10 a.m. and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash hell. You can also show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all of the ways you can help us out here at the show. On last week's Patreon podcast, I went through my drawers and found a lot of crap. Let me rephrase that. I inventoried a random assortment of musings jotted down over lo these many years and shared them with our loyal listeners. For instance, I found a note that said we should put the people working on This Is Hell in good spirits as we enter a new year and give them bonuses to get them excited about next year, 2020. I don't think those bonuses really helped. I also found notes from way back in 2015 on a conversation I had with Michael Roper, co-owner of the Hop Leaf, about uh, what he would never do with the bar. But at last month's opening of This Is Art, Michael admitted he's actually doing what he said he wouldn't do in 2015. He's actually doing it now. We also shared an interview from August 2007 with Jennifer Gonnerman, who wrote the cover story for that month's uh, Mother Jones, School of Shock, Electric Shocks, Withholding Food, Social Isolation, Why Are We Paying for Autistic, Mentally Retarded, remember this article was written in, in 2007, and Emotionally Troubled Kids to be Treated Like Enemy Combatants. Jennifer is also the author of Life on the Outside, The Prison Odyssey of Elaine Bartlett, which was a finalist for the 2004 National Book Award. As I said a couple of times on Patreon over the summer break, Uh, There was a time when Mother Jones did a lot, and I mean a lot, of investigative journalism, and we were fortunate enough to have their writers on This Is Hell. Now, not so much, but what investigative journalists like Jennifer were writing back then in 2007 was absolutely fantastic, and you should go back and listen to my monologue as well as that interview. But you can only hear all of that as well as get an exclusive access uh, code, exclusive access to a secret code, that give, gets you a discount on all of our "This Is Hell" merchandise by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams and is podcast generally on Thursdays, but streams live this week on Friday. Podcast shortly after the same place Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. So again, if you sign up for our Patreon uh, podcast, not only do you get a weekly Patreon podcast, not only do you get a new monologue and an archive, a new monologue from me and an archived interview that is not available anywhere else online. But you get access to all of our past Patreon podcasts, so over 200 at this point, and a $5 discount code for all of our This Is Hell merchandise. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from hell is, What evidence of your crimes are you maniacally (laughs) flushing down the toilet? There are a lot of responses so far. We've got 17 on Facebook.
0: Are there a lot that involve drugs by chance?
1: Uh, I, it doesn't seem like so many. All right, many, that's so. good, good,
0: good. <laughs> I thought that was going to be the cliche thing that everybody was going to run for.
1: All right. Uh, well, first, is from our very own Ronaldo Magaldi. He says he's flushing down early drafts of rotten history full of tongue twisters deviously crafted to make Chuck sound stupid on the radio.
0: (laughs) I liked it, though. I liked the challenge. That's why I have a tongue twister book sitting right in here in the room with me that I try to use as much as possible. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather.
1: <laughs> Good technique practice. Thank you. okay. Uh, Krimsky crackers uh, says that this question is an assault on the liberty to flush and a witch hunt.
0: <laughs> it is a witch hunt.
1: <laughs> Josh F says, All evidence of my part in the deal to bring NASCAR to downtown Chicago. Oh my God, that is (laughs)
0: such a bad idea. That is. Rahm Emanuel tried to do the same thing with uh, Formula One racing. He wanted to have a Formula One race downtown. Nobody downtown wanted it because it's going to be so loud and it's going to attract a million people.
1: I don't understand. The traffic downtown so bad. Like, why would you add a racetrack?
0: <laughs> exactly. And by the way, can you come downtown now when we're going to close off most of downtown to a racetrack? That'll make it really easily accessible. <laughs> what a nightmare.
1: Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, Chris H. says, an ice pick. Right. <laughs> it might do some damage Yikes. to your toilet. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> Pete Valvanis of Carries says, a burrito. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. David Z. says, the checkbook I stole from the Anderson 80 campaign. No, oh, that's,
0: that's an odd reference, but okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know who this Anderson man yeah, is. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay.
0: It's not important.
1: <laughs> Brian W. says, in quotations, Greywater.
0: Ugh, gross. Close quotation. Gross. At work
1: per Ingham Co. Health Department. Okay, Whoever the Ingham County
0: is. Health Department. Yep. That's just, the whole thing is <laughs> County, disgusting. <okay>.
1: Gross. <laughs> Um, any more? Uh, sure. Shall we keep going? Sure. Uh, Philip A. says, The byproducts of my Colorado River draining almond habit.
0: No, oh, whatever. <laughs> wow.
1: Uh, John? Oh, it's all because of uh, almond, almond farms yeah. are draining the yeah, Colorado I River. I feel knowledge. that. I hear that. We Arizonans depend on the Colorado <laughs> River as well. Because otherwise Stop you don't have... Stop drinking almond milk. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's
1: not even good. yeah <laughs> All right. John T. says, it's also really bad for bees, but anyways. John yeah. T. says, uh, vaporous crimes. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. word right? Vaporous crimes? Vaporous,
0: sure. Yeah, that's disgusting, too. It's
1: been taking two days to flush the toilet once. Wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. I knew the word
0: toilet was not going to make this a pleasant question from
1: home. Uh, Peter K. says, an 18-syllable haiku and a 32-syllable tonka.
0: All right, then.
1: <laughs> and it looks like there are like five or six more here on Facebook.
0: Uh, let's leave them then for Dan tomorrow. Is Dan in tomorrow? Is yes, Dan,
1: is Dan Dan should be in tomorrow. I think Sebastian's on Thursday.
0: So uh, Dan Hill will be here tomorrow with the rest, or with more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. You can email your answer to this week's question from hell to chuck at this or post them on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell. Or you can DM them to us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want, the this is hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, face mask, coffee mug, winter hat, the trucker's cap. Or the uh, This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive Featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s You can see all of our merchandise right now At thisishell.com when you click on support And uh, remember Without you we got nothing So thanks to all of you for your support We really truly appreciate it Uh, Sign up for our Patreon podcast Or just go get something of ours Over at thisishell.com When you click on support And if you are a Patreon patron already And you want to up the level of your subscription We'd appreciate that as well It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On August 14, 1996, 26 years ago this week at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, Professor Karen Wetterhahn was alone in a chemistry laboratory working on a project in collaboration with colleagues at Harvard and MIT that involved research into carcinogenic effects of the heavy metal chromium. Their aim was to investigate the role of zinc proteins in repairing DNA damage, which would helpfully shed light on how chromium damaged the DNA in the first place. And up to this point, I have no idea what rotten turn this will take or when this history becomes hellish. On this day, Wetterhahn's task, which she was unwilling to entrust to any assistant, was to transfer a small amount of dimethylmercury, uh-oh, transfer a small amount of dimethyl mercury from a sealed glass container to a piece of lab equipment to perform nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy none of which sounds good for professor Karen Wetterhahn dimethyl mercury was known to be extremely toxic but Wetterhahn was wearing full protective gear including latex gloves so she was not too concerned when a few drops of the chemical fell onto her latex-covered hand but five months later, she would develop stomach pains and slurred speech and would have trouble walking. The following June, she would go deaf and blind, fall into a coma, and finally die at the age of 48. Post mortem testing would reveal horrific levels of mercury in her hair. Wetterhahn's death shocked experts into an awareness that dimethyl mercury was even more dangerous than previously known. A study at Northwestern University, go cats, in Evanston soon revealed that the chemical could easily pass right through laboratory gloves made of latex or neoprene. Chemists at Michigan State University, go green, go white, in East Lansing soon developed alternative procedures for nuclear magnetic resonance, work using less dangerous chemicals. Today, experts warn that anyone working with dimethyl mercury must wear long neoprene gloves, the production of which is toxic covered by a second pair of gloves made of laminated plastic. But they admit that much is still unknown about the chemical's toxic effects, largely because its extreme toxicity has made most researchers refuse to go anywhere near dimethyl mercury. Which leads me to ask, why are we doing anything at all with dimethyl mercury? After all, my understanding is an artificial human-made compound, so. Can we just say we're done with it and never make dimethyl mercury again? That seems like the solution to this problem. In Rotten History on August 18, 1967, 55 years ago this week, at Boston's Fenway Park, the Red Sox and the California Angels— Oh, I bet this is about Tony Conigliaro, isn't it? I bet. I'm, I'm betting Tony Conigliaro comes up in this story. The Red Sox and Angels were in a scoreless tie at the bottom of the fourth inning— when Red Sox right fielder Tony Conigliaro knew it, came up for his second at-bat against pitcher Jack Hamilton of the Angels at the young age of 22. Conigliaro, in four seasons, had already compiled an impressive record of 104 home runs and 294 RBIs, the batting average of two eighty seven, Sports writers viewed him as being on pace with the careers of some of the all-time greats. But when Hamilton wound up and delivered an inside fastball, it hit Conigliaro in the face. In 1967, batter's helmets did not include the protective face flap that is now required in Major League Baseball. In fact, I don't even know if Canigliero was wearing any helmet at all during that at-bat. So Canigliero fell to the ground, his face a horrifying bloody mess, and he was carried off the field on a stretcher with a shattered cheekbone, a dislocated jaw, and major damage to the retina of his left eye. The injury put him out for the season and doctors advised him to end his baseball career pointing out that an impact two inches higher on the head would have killed him remarkably canigliaro did return to the game two years later in what at first seemed a miraculous comeback at first he'd learned to compensate for his damaged eyesight well enough for two more years of the red sox but Then he was traded to the California Angels, ironically, for one lackluster season. Later, he returned to Boston for a brief and unsuccessful stint as a designated hitter. But his eyesight just kept getting worse and worse, and he was finally forced to retire. In 1982, at the age of just 38, he suffered a heart attack and stroke, which put him in a vegetative state for eight years until his death in 1990. And suddenly, I'm not feeling so great about being right that the story would be about... Tony Canigliaro, and it's all a reminder of, you know, baseball sucks. Finally, in Rotten History, on August nineteenth, nineteen 1936, 86 years ago this week, amid the growing chaos of civil war, one of the greatest Spanish writers of the 20th century, Federico Garcia Lorca, was arrested and killed in the southern city of Granada on orders of right-wing nationalists operating under the authority of the fascist leader. General Francesco Franco, sounds about right. Francisco was a fascist dick, and fascist dicks hate great writers, but man, do they have massive crushes on horrible, horrible writers. Garcia Lorca had authored 19 plays, including Blood Wedding and The House of Bernarda Alba, and more than a dozen books of surrealist po- poetry. That's probably why they killed him. Fascists hate surrealist poetry. For many years, the circumstances of García Lorca's death were veiled in confusion and mystery as the Franco regime, which held power until the general's death in 1975, denied involvement, maintaining for years that leftists were using García Lorca's death for purposes of propaganda. Franco himself said that the author had died simply as, quote, a natural accident of war, which assumes war is natural, which it is not, but again, It's what you'd expect from a fascist dick like Franco, who, like most fascist dicks, is very predictable. But secret uh, documents released in 2015 revealed that Franco's nationalists, operating in close alliance with the Catholic Church, naturally, had targeted García Lorca as a socialist and Freemason and as a reputed homosexual. A socialist, Freemason, and as a reputed homosexual, all of which are listed on my resume as previous occupations. The author was arrested and taken by car to a remote location where, according to the documents, he quickly confessed, was summarily executed, and was buried in a nearby ravine. In the years since García Lorca's death, many efforts have been made to locate his remains, but so far their location remains unknown. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hal Lindsay. Do we know who our our upcoming guest this week here on This Is Hell. We do. Excellent. Would you like to share that information, or are you going to keep it a secret?
1: I'm trying to get it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I never know when you're going to say it. I, I, know, I have I it ready, a ki- and then you keep talking, and then I go I get I rid of it. Anyways, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> Algernon Austin is on tomorrow. and They are the Director of Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He will be on to discuss his recent writing, including Black people need better options than the morgue or mass incarceration. Okay. Black people and everyone else should avoid crypto. Okay. Only radical changes will make rents affordable. That's true. And Black children are disproportionately harmed by extremist gun rights policies in the U.S.
0: Now that I want to know more about.
1: Also joining us later this week will be Heather Berg, who will be on to talk about her Boston Review article... Freedom, not benefits. Sex workers are labor's vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. Awesome. Heather Berg writes about sex work, social. Oh no, it's cut off. Yeah. Uh, It's here. Hold on. where is it in my email the whole thing i'm sorry, sorry. About that. So, uh, but he- you, go ahead i got it heather berg writes about sex work and social struggle her first book porn work explores worker strategies for navigating and subverting precarity her writing appears her writing has appeared in many journals including feminist studies signs south atlantic quarterly, quarterly and others Heather is Assistant Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. You can find her at Dr. Heather Berg on Twitter.
0: Dr. Heather Berg on Twitter. And, of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchen. But this week, Jeff follows our second guest, follows our guest tomorrow. Instead of uh, his regularly scheduled slot following our final guest each week, Instead, wrapping up this week's show will be producer Sebastian Vooper with his seg- uh, segment on history that is being renamed, formerly known as Sebastian Soapbox. This week, we are unveiling the past inside the present. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. I promise you I will get you a rundown next week. I'm going to do that for all of the producers so everybody knows exactly what order everything is happening in. I used to do it every time for all of the ba- past producers. But then when only Alex was working on the show, show, he had it kind of memorized, so I fell out of the habit. I apologize for not having a rundown for you today, Lindsay. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My
1: demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor.